Ladies and gentlemen, this is now officially a Jimmy Butler fan podcast, okay? That's what what this whole podcast is about. Jimmy Butler, Jesus Christ, carrying the heat. In the words, Public Enemy's Chuck D, bring the noise. Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor, and this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I can't believe it, man. The Heat are three-one up on the Milwaukee Bucks as I record, and it feels fucking great, outstanding. Like I was literally up last night. Just um, I wasn't watching it, but I was looking up on Twitter periodically, so I was attempting to sleep. Um. And I was just like, nah, nah, nah. they were constantly, they were constantly behind by like double digits. Not too much, but not too little, right? You know, like in between like 10, 15 behind. So it was possible, but I'm just like, uh, Giannis is back, right? You know what I mean? So it's, 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 it's raps. They're going to, they're going to bring it home nice and soft. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, equal, equal the, uh, equal the score up and, uh, and proceed to, uh, Bosch the heat in the next few games, but then Hemi Butler comes through with fifty six points. Are you dumb? Unbelievable, man! Unfucking believable. I was just like, bro, you you guys need to help this man. Help this man, please. I beg you, one of you, any of you, help this man. And he's like, you know what? Fuck it, carry it carry the whole fucking team and he literally did it literally carried the whole team to victory um i mean just yeah outstanding playoff performance of the year so far shout to jimmy Butler, man absolutely outstanding um but yeah man the whole nba playoffs is uh spicing up very nicely very very nicely it's looking very uh very must watch uh for the majority of the games um and uh yeah we're close to the second round um about all about a week or so out now, uh, a few more games. Uh, hope, hopefully, hopefully he can just do the unthinkable and beat Milwaukee three four one, and uh, that might potentially bring up a Heat Knicks series, which um, for those who are much older than me and are into basketball, know how how sexy a prospect that is of uh, Knicks Heat, just proper throwback. Uh, proper throwback matchup, and uh, I'd, I'd love, I'd love that. I'd love that. Um, the Heat, the, the Knicks are fascinating to me. I love Knicks fans. They're just so, ah, uh, just they, 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 the Knicks bring the best out of New Yorkers. You know what I mean? Just like uh, New Yorkers are so hilarious to me, and n- they are never more hilarious than when they're just outside Madison Square Garden after a win. They're just so fucking hilarious to me, and uh, I'm here for it. I'm really here for it. So, uh, yeah, hopefully that goes down. We shall see how it goes for the rest of the week. Um, but, yeah, man, shout out to Jimmy Butler, man. Absolutely just just don shit, man. Just carrying a whole fucking team on his back. Absolutely outstanding. So, we have a... Uh, 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 what do we have? <laughs> Let's look it up. Look it up. Uh, we have a two... Uh, wait, we have a film? Yeah, let's, let's call that film. We have a film 
and politics and also a long read to finish off. Um, I'm kind of, you know, I've done, I've done, it's probably the third, I think it's the third show I've done that. I'm, I'm, I'm liking it. I'm liking it. The last week was, was a really hard slog for me. I just didn't really, I, I, <laughs> I, I really shafted myself by picking such a long, long read. Um, this one I read last night is, uh, you know, I, I think I can get through it uh, relatively easily. Um, it's a great, it's a great topic, and uh, I will preface it beforehand uh, with a uh, with something I did in the pr- in, in the past couple of days um, on Sunday specifically. But we'll get to that when we get to that. For now, formalities before we begin. Email, uh, socials, writing, all of that in the full show notes. Music as well, and also the podcast under the Five EPN. Give those a spin. Just dropped the ITD uh, on Jim Jones and Lord, was that a mission to do in terms of actually listening to the music? Jesus Christ. Um, but yeah, go, get into that if you want to get into that and the rest of the 5 EPM podcast in the full show notes. But with that said, let the beat drop and let's get into the show. In a week where Dominic Raab resigns as a deputy PM, um, good rinse. Um, he should have gone years ago, but um, he still just somehow made it this far. Um, but yeah, douchebag, as they all are. Uh, it's been 30 years since the murder of Stephen Lawrence. Uh, India passes China to become most populous country. Uh, Joe Biden announces 2024 presidential run. He'll be 82 by, uh, <laughs> by, uh, by I think, uh, what, what do they call it? Uh, inauguration Day? Uh, whatever, whatever, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Um, after the, 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 the thing after the election, and yeah, the celebratory day, whatever it's called. Um, so yeah, have fun with that, America. And lastly, Harry Belafonte dies age 96. So let's jump into well, well, we could have, we could have, we could go either way here. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to map out how I want to break it down here. Do I go for the politics? Do I go for the film? Because I let you just mention Harry Belafonte, that'd be kind of a nice mix. But then I said Dominic Raab as well. Let's do the politics. Um, let's get that out of the way because um, this is a, this is not quite been holding on to for uh, a while, just a few weeks now. And uh, I really wanted to uh, sink my teeth into it. And I think it says a lot. It says a lot, um, especially with the recent, I didn't mention it in the week where, but um, the recent, uh, you know, Diane Abbott, uh, Jewish letter she made to the Observer, however you want to word all that. Um, and just everything that the Tories do and everything that Labour has done since the subject of this article um, was about kind of says it all to me um, and because of that pisses me the fuck off right <laughs> like all of it just 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 really really sets me off um, so let's jump into this this is uh, by the new statesman written by George Eaton is called we're still living in Margaret Thatcher's world. Just think about that headline, you know? It's absurd that someone with who's been dead for so many years 
and has been out of and was out of politics for even further still has a chokehold on everybody in politics's uh worldview it's absurd like pe pe the public hate thatcher unless you're a tory dick rider you hate thatcher it's just fact okay that you hate thatcher but for some reason not just the tories but also labor participate in well obviously neoliberalism right that's the main bit and i've talked about that before in this show but just everything else it doesn't make sense keir starman not wanting to uh canning people uh from labor because they went uh they went uh, with the picket lines uh last year in the quote-unquote summer of discontent it's just what are you doing? You're Labour, bro. You're, you, what do you think Labour, the term, where do you think that came from? It doesn't make sense. Anyway, let's jump into this, see where we get. In the 1990s, after well-lubricated lunches with their former aides Charles Powell and Bernard Ingham, Margaret Thatcher would sometimes declare, quote, come on, we are going to march up Downing Street and reclaim number 10, unquote. Three prime ministers have yearned to return to government after being evicted. Powell believed that she never ha had another happy day, but, a ho but holding office as Thatcher's successor, John Majorland, is not the same Is not the same as holding power. Apologies for my kind of tough, scraggy voice. I'm, I'm, I'm coming down from last week and it's still there in some ways. Uh, the struggle for intellectual and political supremacy is waged over decades, not years. Truly great leaders govern in exile by forcing their successors to retain their reforms. It is this distinction that Thatcher achieved. Not one of her privatisations has been overturned uh, by subsequent governments, British Telecom, British Gas, British Airways and British Steel. Such, such assets left the state never to return. Asked at a dinner in Hampshire in 2002, what she considered to be her greatest achievement, Thatcher replied, quote, Tony Blair and New Labour, we forced our opponents to change their minds, unquote. When she died 10 years ago, this weekend, 8th of April, uh, so this obviously dropped in 7th, uh, there was much a talk of how polarising Thatcher remained decades after leaving office, but on one point, there was consensus. She redefined the limits of the possible. Ed Miliband, the Labour leader in 2013, praised her for having moved the centre ground. Because that's what we want, guys, the move to centre ground. Some of Thatcher's achievements have grown less distinctive with the years. At the time of her death, she remained the only woman to have served as Prime Minister a decade on. Two others have held the office, brackets, with more mixed success. <laughs> you, you don't fucking say. <laughs> God damn. Uh, big, up, uh, big up Liz. Still getting the bag, by the way. Um, failed up, completely had the worst Prime Minister of tenure. And still earns, um, if I remember correctly, of one headline I saw, about 65k per speaking engagement. So, love to fail up, eh? Love the privilege. Back in 2013, many on the left and the right doubted whether the Conservative Party would ever win another majority. That just uh, landslides gleamed all, all the more brightly. Only two years later, David Cameron shattered such fatalism. At the 2019 general election, the Tories won their highest share of the vote. Since that, just triumph in 79, 43.6%. The strange uh, death of Conservative England became the strange rebirth. Yet in the ideological sphere, 
Thatcher remained in a class of her own. British politics has hardly been stable, but the pillars of the edifice she built have outlasted the storm. What was the essence of Thatcherism? Contrary to some of her latter-day followers, it was not public spending cuts and tax cuts. Real-term spending rose in every year of her premiership apart from two, 85-86 and 89-90. Unemployment and disability benefits for former industrial workers, housing benefit for struggling tenants, and higher defence spending drove up state expenditure even as it fell elsewhere. Potted accounts of Thatcherism typically cite the cut in top rate of income tax from 83% to 40% and the cut in corporation tax from 52 to 35 Few have mentioned that VAT was raised from 8% to 15% and national insurance was uh, at national insurance from 6.5% to 9%. While windfall taxes were imposed on the banks and energy companies and the poll tax on households, rather than, low, rather than low taxes, Thatcherism more often meant lower taxes for the right kind of people. Instead of merely uh, a smaller state, Thatcher led one that was formidably strong in advancing financial interests. UK house prices arose by 187% in, and London house prices by 251 as more than a million council homes were sold off. The UK accounted for 40% of the total value of assets privatised across the OECD between 1980 and 1996. Quote, If the left had, e- had ever perpetrated a similar confiscation on the rich, the right would have howled with righteous Rage and pain, wrote Ian Gilmore, the former Conservative cabinet minister and Thatcher's most eloquent Tory critic in his 1992 book, Dancing with Dogma. Every UK government since has dwelled in the shadow of this economic revolution. Rather than challenging the fundamentals of Thatcherism, New Labour sought to humanise it by redistributing income through tax credits and targeting pensioner and child poverty. Blair boasted that his government would, quote, leave British law... Uh, the most restrictive on trade unions in the Western world, unquote. Public investment was neglected in favour of the uh, of the profligate, profligate, is that how you say it, profligate, uh, private finance initiative, and the City of London indulged as never before. Another quote, I always thought my job was to build on something, some of the things she had done rather than reverse them, Blair confirmed on the day of Thatcher's death. 26 years earlier, in the London Review of Books, he wrote of the tremendous danger in believing that Thatcherism, quote, is somehow now invincible, that it's established a new consensus, and that all the rest of us can do is debate alternatives within its framework, unquote. In so doing, Blair accurately anticipated the future of British politics. True, the the Labour left broke free from the sealed tomb intended for it and tempted Thatcherism in reverse, but this project's defeat was so emphatic that it already resembles a mere anomaly. Keir Starmer's Labour exhibits no desire to roll back the Thatcherite settlement. As important as New Labour's creation has been the survival of the New Conservatives, a once uh, proud one-nation wing has never recovered from the death blow that Thatcher inflicted on it. That David Cameron and Boris Johnson are sometimes described as members of this dormant faction only confirms how much history has has been forgotten. Neither showed any interest in rewilding Maggie's farm. Cameron's government was content to sell Royal Mail. Thatcher herself was, quote, not prepared to have the Queen's heads privatised, unquote. Today's Conservative Party exists in a wholly Thatcherite universe. Only variations on the original theme are permitted. In the 2022 Tory leadership election, Rishi Sunak laid claim to one of Thatcher's legacy, fiscal conservatism, while Liz Truss appropriated another, tax cuts and supply-side radicalism. Neither questioned whether they were looking in the wrong place. 
Sunak may be the most Thatcherite Prime Minister since Thatcher herself. Uh, fi- his fiscal uh, discipline is truer to her spirit than Truss's kamikaze tax cuts. And he is most animated when championing free ports, economic zones, liberated from standard tariffs and regulations. For Sunak, who endorsed leave in the EU uh, referendum, the appeal of the exit was to tilt the UK in an even more pro-market direction. Big up neoliberalism. The debate over whether Thatcher would have backed the exit has sometimes veered into ghoulishness, but those who cite her support for the European project in 1975 referendum too readily ignore her later work. Having vanquished so many of her original foes, Thatcher came to see the EU as a new one. She was animated by the possibility of liberation, routinely citing Singapore as an exemplar for the UK. Uh, her former Chancellor Nigel Lawson, who died aged 91 on the 3rd of April, put the case for the exit most succinctly, quote, to finish the job that Margaret Thatcher started, unquote. We are still living in the revolution that she initiated, uh, including its unintended consequences, Thatcher's economic liberalism was in perpetual tension with her social conservatism. Today's Britain, where same-sex couples can marry, where less than half of the population identifies as Christian, and where private landlords own 40% of former council homes is not one, not the one she sought. But the economic, mod- economic model she created has overwhelmed all challenges. Will Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer win the next general election? Commentators ask animated, animatedly, animatedly why do I say it like that? In many respects, Margaret Thatcher already has. Yeah. And this is kind of, this is a disappointing thing and what makes me feel so pessimistic, let's say, about politics in general in this country is the fact that a woman that has been dead for a decade and last participated in politics as far as I, well, in terms of like her PM, her PM premiership, right, was before the fucking 90s, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, ah, just really, it, it's, it leaves such a, bad taste in my mouth that you lot can't think for yourselves you know what i mean just uh just they, they just literally go off her vibes it doesn't make it doesn't make sense yeah 1990 and uh yeah so 1990 was when she uh finished her premiership um in pri- as prime minister but yeah it's just it's silly it's so ugh, it's so grimy all of this man and the fact that Labour, the only the only time Labour can actually get a W is literally just by being, like I keep saying, Tory light, says it all. I don't get what people, well, okay, obviously I can't really blame the people when, you know, the mainstream media is what it is, so I can't put too much blame on the people, but fucking hell, guys, read, please, please, I beg you, read, please, please, please. Please, I beg you, read for yourselves. Stop listening to shit news. Stop, I, I, I sorry, um... This is completely out of the completely out of um, just completely tangent, but um, I saw a clip from these uh, two people on uh, talk TV. It was like just before one a.m. and what was it called? Like uh, uh, I forget the name on the show, but woke was in the title of the show, and I was just like, "Who the fuck is watching this at one a.m.? You must be bugging. You must be a certain level of nut job to actually watch this shit at one a.m. It's absurd, right?" But, you know, while socially there's a lot of... And this is this is the annoying thing, right? People preach of all of these progressive things that have happened. But, you know, I covered a few weeks ago that trans hate has skyrocketed, right? So it's not all fucking great, is it? It's not all... Socially, it's not all great. Socially, it's a lot worse in my mind. 
just because they're just because asbos don't exist don't mean there's a, there's wayward use and why are there wayward use you ask you know because of what the Tories have done in the past 13 years cutting all these chopping down all these community centers and uh, just opportunities for youths to actually do something apart from go to school and then go home and that's it need to give these youths something to do and obviously this is a small 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 part of just everything that Maggie Thatcher has uh, has perpetuated um I mean, Labour itself as a concept, right? <laughs> and, and obviously the miners' strikes are a big part of her legacy. And um, and all of that social conservative conservatism shit, right? The fact that um, the UK Black Power movement was happening around the same time as well says a lot. Um, but, you know, the world changes in a lot of ways. But for some reason, UK politics have just stayed the same most of the time for... Uh, for the for the real shit anyway, right? Obviously, you know, oh, I'll just say about that gay marriage. Like, it's not, it's not, that's not going to hurt anybody. None of the, none of that shit. None of no progressive social, um, pr- progressive social, uh, landmarks, let's say, right? For lack of a better phrase, right? Such as gay marriage, right? That's not hurting anybody. It really is not hurting anybody. And it's the fact that people don't give a shit anymore when they probably did when it initially happened, when she came down. Like, it's funny, isn't it? It's funny how shit works. You, 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 people just get so reactionary. It's like, oh, oh gay people, oh, gay people are married, gay people are And the, the, the mini panic that ha- people had when uh, the censors came out and there was less Christians and a bit more Muslims. Like, the, the reactionary shit is so tiresome. It's so, so tiresome. Even the Diane Abbott shit that I was talking about previously is just... Calm down. Let's have a conversation about race, please. But people are so fucking unsubtle and so fucking reactionary knee-jerk. You can't have a subtle conversation anymore. And people can't have a... And because of this, it just leads Tories, it just leads the Labour Party now, tory light to just go ahead and implement all these Thatcherite uh, hallmarks and just, you know, and just... Twist it just a little bit. Just just a little bit. No one's a 50 cent. Just a little bit. It's just absurd. And even political commentators. Even the New Statesman, for example. Uh, you know, even Andrew Marr, who's a big part of the New Statesman. Uh, go, look at, go look at what he was talking about when it came to the Iraq war. <laughs> it's jarring. Journalists need to do better. Media needs to do better. But they don't care because this feels fulfills the status quo, and everybody in that fashion, in that faction, is happy with where the, where everything's at. Don't matter as long as you keep reading. Uh, as long as you keep reading the sun, it's all good there. Don't matter. Don't matter. Who wants to progress in life? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares how uh, to to uh, boost the arts? Who cares about boosting um, opportunities for children? Who cares about education reform? Who cares? Who cares? As long as people get to get lower get as long as they make inflation lower shit that's all the Tories have to do at this point just lower inflation and you might they might have a chance in a cut in, in next year when the general election comes down that, that that's it that's it that's all they have to do literally just do a couple of things and then they have another five years to completely batter this country to fucking death but anyway big up big, big up Megan Thatcher of course Thank you.
That was a bit of an unhinged rant, wasn't it? <laughs> a little bit unhinged. Kind of went all over the place. But anyway, let's get something more positive. Um, as I think I talked about it previously, um, I went to Raven Row um, in Spitalfields uh, for the first time. Uh, where I pre- well, Before I did that, I talked about an exhibition going on in Raven Row. Um, where it was uh, People Make Television, where I was talking about the, well, the whole exhibition was based on the uh, BBC uh, community programming um, under Thatcher, <laughs> funny enough, <laughs> right, um, uh, where they had that, and uh, there was a con- there was a show called Open Door, and uh, if you go on, if you go on Wasgood's, um, on the, especially on the transistor link that, I've, uh, that, you know, I usually post, uh, when I post this, when I post episodes, um, you can find, you can look up uh, on the episode uh, tab. You can just look up uh, "open door" and hopefully it should come up. Um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a few months ago, and uh, I really enjoyed going there. Um, I don't know if I talked about it before, but I really enjoyed going there. So I was kind of late. Um, I wish I was there for a little bit longer um, before it closed, um, but it is what it is. And uh, regardless, I got uh, some really fascinating just insight into community programming and how the fuck that would never happen now. That can never happen now. Um, but it was very interesting. So for now, um, uh, there's another one. The next exhibition, um, is kind of the main subject of what I'm going to talk about here. Or what the article I'm going to read is talking about here. Um, this is by Leila Latif. Uh, this is via The Guardian. And it's called A Cinema of Resistance. How June Giovanni uh, amassed a 10,000 piece Pan-African film archive. Um, just off the back of that, just screams something that i have i have such a deep lack of knowledge on and i would love for that to be a catalyst to, for me to learn um but off the back of that um so yeah let's get into it well the exhibition at london's raven road gallery is called per ank or unk is it unk i think i say say it uh the june giovanni pan-african cinema archive the black british film, film curator activist and archivist who created it is has is hesitant about positioning herself front and centre. Quote, I don't want to sound like it's all me, 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 she worries. My name is all, my name is part of it because I worked as a curator for many years and collected work throughout the non-digital era, which developed into this archive, unquote. Though she wants the films, documents, artworks and objects she has preserved to be to be the focus of people's attention, from an installation of the earliest audiovisual works by the Black Audio Film Collective to new works by the... Uh, Chimarenga Collective from South Africa, Giovanni is more than worthy of the spotlight. When she received the British Independent Film Awards Grand Jury Prize in 2021, the organisers said that she had, quote, made an extraordinary selfless and lifelong contribution to documenting a pivotal period of film history, unquote. Born in British Guyana 72 years ago, Giovanni moved to the UK aged seven and was immediately underestimated. They put me with with the five-year-olds because I was black and I'd come from the Caribbean, she remembers. My mum went to the school twice before as uh, th- before they moved me up to my age range, unquote. As an adult, Giovanni collaborated with some of the most significant figures and institutions in Pan-African cinema across different territories, different continents. She kept adding elements to her collection, she says, because I needed to use them for subsequent programs as, and as part of building a body of knowledge and a whole series of resources that can be shared with others. I want to stop there briefly because... That is the, that's the part of knowledge seeking that I just adore. I, I that's, that's, the, that's the part of it I adore. The fact that the when you, when you search something up, 
and I had this actually, and I'll talk about it now actually. Just in it just in this is a minor tangent. I went to the Sachi Gallery this uh, past Sunday uh for the Beyond the Streets exhibition, uh which is going on I think till the end of uh I think like ninth of May, tenth of May, somewhere around there. Um uh, don't quote me on it, look up look up for yourself. Um and it was amazing. Um as a hip hop fan, um I am grossly uh I grossly lack the knowledge of uh one of the pillars of hip hop, which is graffiti and uh and just aerosol art and all that stuff, right? And this and beyond the, and beyond beyond uh, fucking hell, uh, was uh, uh, a it was enlightening for me uh, to go there and to experience all of these legendary stories about graffiti artists and uh, street art and not just that not just not just you know visual elements like that right um, that was on the walls obviously and uh, you know pieces going about but also fashion there was like. Adidas, Beastie Boy gear, Run DMC gear, um, you know, just Adidas kicks from back in the day, and there was a significant uh, dedication to graffiti life in the UK, which I will get to in the long read, and uh, street art, and the differences between the two, and the, it was just a lot, um, it was a lot to take in, and that's what's so, that's what I love about knowledge seeking, where you where for me, for example, as a hip hop student, I you know I started that I started that journey through the music, right? But then when you listen to the music, you get mentioned, you know, certain names, and then you start to read books on these people, and you know you hear stories, and then you get and all you have all all you get given is like a name, and that could lead you to so much so much more, right? Um, it's fascinating, and that's what. That's what should. That's what education should be about. That's why it's. That's the best thing about it, where you're given something, and then you're given a name or you're given a an event, and then you look up that event, and then you look up more names, and it just snowballs. It snowballs, and uh, I left it, and I've I've said this before, and it's a you know very noted saying. Uh, the more you gain knowledge, the more you realize how little you know. And uh, I can imagine that's what happened at some point for Giovanni, uh, where you you know you experience one thing and then you think you know it all, right? And then you experience another thing and it's a whole another kettle of fish, and you're just like, oh, I know nothing, <laughs> and it humbles you, um, but also gives you that hunger for more. Um, so yeah, I, I I appreciate that particular paragraph. Continuing on. Lack of preservation has meant many of Pan-African uh, cinema's masterworks have disappeared. In America alone, it's estimated more than 80% of black films from the silent era are lost, and technological advances endanger film further. While physical film has a potential self- shelf life of hundreds of years, digital preservation requires constant migration to keep up with changing technology. The impact of digitization makes, quote, everyone's work more challenging, Javali and Bits, and nobody knew it was going to go that way, otherwise they might have done things very differently, unquote. Giovanni has faced changes in technology, politics and culture since she began in the early 80s. The first film festival she worked on was called Third Eye, inspired by the Latin American third cinema movement, which set out to challenge Europe and North America's dominance in film. For Giovanni, the festival provided, quote, an area to develop our own ideas about representation and taking charge. Pan-African cinema has always been a cinema of resistance. 
I can't tell you how inspiring it was that there were all these people out there doing things that really chimed with what I thought should be happening, unquote. Giovanni fortified this quote-unquote cinema of resistance across institutions and roles almost as varied as the archive itself. She programmed festivals on five continents, worked for Greater London Council's Ethnic Minorities Unit and the Independent Television Commission, ran the BFI's African African Caribbean Film Unit and co-edited Black Film Bulletin, which relaunched in 2021 as a quarterly collaboration with Sight & Sound magazine, and has celebrated the undersung work of filmmakers like Menelik Shabazz, Horace Ove and Julie Dash. The archive proliferated as she, quote, was working independently for the most part, and I would keep the posters, the physical press packs, VHSs, and cassettes, unquote. The spirit of Pan-Africanism was a guiding light, connecting all cultures that originated on the continent without treating them as a monolith. Giovanni, uh, Giovanni explains, quote, when I say Pan-African, it's not just the African continent, it's the entire diaspora. All those significant histories, significant histories are interconnected, and cinema is very much part of that, unquote. Choosing how to represent that history at Raven Row with selections from an archive that now surpasses 10,000 items was a gargantuan task, but Giovanni immediately knew she wanted to include, quote, a poster of the Mogadishu Film Week given to me at my first attendance at the Paco Film Festival in 1985 by a Somali filmmaker. Now people mention Somalia and they don't picture these vibrant and strategic cultural events taking place there, unquote. The exhibition forms an alternative history, acknowledging the vitality and ingenuity that are underappreciated or studiously ignored by so many, and the value of physical films and objects that beyond ob- and objects is beyond just what they depict. Quote, At the Havana Film Festival, I bought a collection of silkscreen posters that will be exhibited. Lots of art can be seen digitally, but to see a silkscreen poster, the texture and the colour of it, there's an experience of culture and artefacts that goes beyond digital representation, unquote. Beyond allowing the public to admire key uh, objects from Giovanni's collection, the exhibition is structured around a programme of films from the likes of Sarah Maldoror and Usman Sembine, mother and father of African cinema. There is also an archive studio and reading room in the spirit of the exhibition's title, Per Unk, an Egyptian term for, quote, a place of learning and memory, unquote. While Giovanni has always been at the forefront of the decolonization of culture, engaging with the archive invites you to join her there. It acts as a living organism, forever growing and reframing the outlook of those who encounter it. For Giovanni, quote, it always symbolized how you can challenge people's mindset about what the world is, unquote. Okay, so the uh, the archive is going to be at Raven Row, like I said, um, until June 4th, the 4th of June. So there's plenty of time over a month uh, to get into that. Uh, I'm going to uh, actually, oh, I've just got an idea. I'm actually <laughs> I'm actually in up London uh, sometime next month and I might hit it then. I'm going to see. I'm gonna, Yeah, OK, let me let me do that right quick. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, let me, let me see if I can plan that out. But um, yeah, I am. I'm going to go in there with, as a blank canvas, um, apart from Isman Simbine, who I only just heard the name of last year, um, I know nothing. <laughs> I really don't. And uh, I'm really excited for this to be a starting point, hopefully for me personally, at some point, um, diving into this, uh, trying to absorb as much as possible 
Um, but yeah, I'll look forward to it. And when I do, I shall come back and I'll report uh, report back uh, my findings and what I learned, uh, which will be most likely a lot. <laughs> a fuck ton, shall we say. So we finish with the long read and uh, linking with the Satchi Gallery uh, visit um, that I did on Sunday, uh, I decided to get into this, which I've had for a while, I've had for a few weeks. Uh, so this is After Hours with Tenfoot, London's most notorious graffiti writer. This is via Financial Times and it was written by Miles Enningham and dropped on February 3rd, 2023. With that said, let's jump right in. Tenfoot differs from other shoppers at Halfords in two ways. Firstly, true to his name, he's taller than everyone else, much taller. Secondly, Tenfoot isn't planning on paying for anything. Quote, I think I've used more of this than anyone in the country, and I never knew it was 10.99, he says, gazing a 500ml can of black matte spray paint. For someone as productive as Tenfoot, one night's supplies might cost anywhere between 80 and 150 pounds. But Tenfoot maintains a strict buy none get everything free approach to stocking up today in addition to a few cans of paint he's looking for enough timber to build a makeshift grappling hook and rope ladder he won't tell me what for only that is high stakes i believe him let's keep it moving he says not having found exactly what he's looking for he leaves empty-handed i still don't know why ten foot agreed to meet me he's easily the most prolific graffiti writer in London and one of the most productive globally. He's been repeatedly approached by fashion brands, music labels and TV showrunners with offers to collaborate, most of which he's turned down. There are two Instagram pages, each with thousands of followers dedicated to documenting his output. One of them, at 10foot underscore everywhere, has noted his work in the background of porn videos and video games. Taxi drivers and haulage workers across Europe will likely recognise his work. I once messaged him asking which cities he's tagged, expecting a relatively short response. Instead, I received the following, quote, Yeah, I mean, Paris, Berlin, NYC, Philadelphia, Buenos Aires, Funchal, Lisbon, Oslo, Copenhagen, Snowdonia, Dublin, Galway, Cork, Waterford, Los Angeles, San Diego, Washington DC, New Orleans, Miami, Monterey, Mexico City, Guatemala City, Guadalajara, Ajaxio, Milan, Sicily, Corsica, Bari, Tirana, Moscow, Marseille, Rome, Bogota, Kuwait, Pereira, Quito, Port-au-Prince, Kingston, Jamaica, Kingston, Surrey, Guildford, Glasgow, San Antonio, Dominican Republic, Havana, Cancun, Panama, Taipei, Bangkok, Tokyo, Okinawa, Kyoto, Osaka. Almost every middle-sized town across the UK from Shaftesbury to Shrewsbury to Grimsby to Burnhamont Crouch. All the far-flung islands, White, Scillies, Shetlands, Orkneys, Inner and Outer Hebrides, every state in Mexico, anyway, you get the idea, lol. Unquote. The list is extensive, but nowhere bears his mark more than London, his home, his favourite city. Sometimes his tags is spelt out, 1-O-F-O-O-T. Sometimes it's rendered visually as a foot outline next to a numerical 1, the toe doubling as the zero. Is so widespread in London 
that it's rumoured to have appeared in a recent James Bond film, though I couldn't find it, and it was included in the opening credits of the hit show Top Boy. Tenfoot has a particular penchant for tagging bridges and overpasses, but he also paints shutters, windows, bus stops, and, most significantly, London's sprawling network of track sides and train carriages. If you live here, to have his tag pointed out to you once is to see it almost everywhere you go. Graffiti from the Italian graffio, meaning scratch, is defined by New York Transit Police Detective Buddy Jacobs in the 1983 documentary Star Wars as, quote, the application of a medium to a surface, unquote. Going by Jacobs' definition, humans have been writing graffiti since the Paleolithic era. In modern terms, however, there is one crucial distinction. Graffiti is not street art. It is not the mural of the nondescript, beautiful woman delicately holding a blunt from which a cloud of smoke arises spelling the word community. It's not the adaptation of Magritte's The Lovers with COVID-19 masks instead of veils. Not the colourful depiction of John Lennon, Jimi Hendrix and Nelson Mandela embracing over the phrase anything is possible. Graffiti, real quote-unquote graph, in London at least, consists of a tag, essentially a one-colour signature, a dub, larger often bubble writing using mostly silver and black paints which don't get absorbed by brickwork or a piece, more complex compositions including a background, 3D effects, sometimes cartoon characters, the works. All of it written in a visible location known as a plot. The more inaccessible or policed a plot, the better. Is that an art form? Jacobs asks in the film, pointing to a tag on a train carriage. I don't know. I'm not an art critic, but I can sure as hell tell you that that's a crime. In urban centres, graffiti is so ubiquitous, it's become part of the psychic landscape, although very little attention is paid to those who produce it. There's no money to be made, not for those who are serious about it anyway, not much fame either, beyond the subculture. A good way to distinguish Tenfoot from street artists like Banksy, same genus, different species, is that while street artists add value to assets or property, graphers take it away. For serious writers, the ones who do little else, graphing is about defying authority while, hopefully, avoiding arrest, injury, or death. Graphers like Tenfoot are periodically killed practicing their craft. In 2018, three young writers going by the names Lover, K-Bag, and Trip were struck by a train in South London. The driver didn't even know he'd hit anything until the shift was over. Some years ago, Tenfoot was jailed and served more than a year in prison for racking up criminal damage costing £113,000. When he was finally caught red-handed, multiple cops filed out to meet him, looking pleased with themselves, presumably having spent years poring over thick folders with his name on the label. Apparently, one of them asked for his autograph. You might ask why, in one of the most surveilled cities on earth, someone like Tenfoot has been able to walk out of jail, go right back to writing, and remain free. The answer is simple. Tenfoot can walk through walls. Members of the collective to which he belongs, known as Diabolical Dubstars, or DDS, have finessed the maintenance keys for the London Underground from rail control rooms. Finesse is a term for theft that requires significant skill and or cunning. As a result, they can navigate the city's hidden passageways and tunnels freely. They also know more about train timetables and trackside security than most British transport workers. In 2012, the group was reportedly held responsible for more than £10 million worth of criminal damage. On Boxing Day 2020, Londoners awoke to find the walls of Oxford Circus tube station almost completely redesigned by the group, which used abseiling equipment and the cover of the COVID lockdowns to break onto the platforms. By the time they were done, the whole station resembled the exercise book of an alienated teenager. Quote, 
They're a mythical institution, Tenfoot says of DDS, the most important group in the UK by a city mile. There are hundreds of members, different chapters, a lot of 30-year friendships, and a good few enmities. It's not my story to tell, though. Explaining it to an outsider is very hard, unquote. We've been walking down the old Kent Road for some 40 minutes when Tenfoot realises Wix, a hardware store, and, quote, an unwilling sponsor of the UK graffiti movement, unquote, is closed. He doesn't like the alternative, B&Q. Too many friends have been nicked there. The security guards are going on like the fucking Viet Cong, he says. I can imagine them hiding behind a camouflage net in the parallel aisles. He resolves to go to central London, where he's planning his next big mission. Kafka tells us that a legend is contained within the movement of truth towards the inexplicable. Some people would probably call Tenfoot a legend, as they would other older London writers like Tox, Fume, Fuel and the late King Robbo, fabled to have once slapped Banksy across the face for disrespecting him when they met in a bar. Most writers will have a story about how they or one of their mates miraculously survived a deadly fall, spent hours dangling from a palisade fence or evaded a police helicopter by hiding in a wheelie bin all night. Every tag is a close call, or so graffiti writers like to imagine. Graf's Promethean origins, endlessly retold, involve a teenager named Daryl McRae from a rundown neighbourhood in the 1960s Philadelphia. Known to everyone as Cornbread, McRae developed a crush on a girl called Cynthia and began writing Cornbread Loves Cynthia all over North Philadelphia. The story goes that Cornbread was eventually arrested for putting his name on the side of an elephant at the Philadelphia Zoo. It wasn't until 1981 when a writer named Futura brought the New York style of singular colourful monikers to London that graffiti started to take hold in the UK. There, nestled among the blood-red brick and desolate grey concrete of Blighty, it mingled with the anarchist tradition adopted by punk bands and became something new. UK Graph, an amalgam of British political alienation and American countercultural swag. People online have speculated about the meaning of Ten Foot's tag, suggesting that maybe it's a reference to the standard distance that separates railway tracks. Quote, I'm just called Ten Foot because I was always really tall, he says. Much like Michael Phelps or the Kalenjin runners, Ten Foot's body is perfectly suited to his sport. His long limbs let him reach over walls and stretch for faraway handholds. From below, you might mistake him for an enormous broad-shouldered spider monkey searching for fruit and grubs. We are cycling towards Waterloo. Tenfoot rides one-handed, holding my dictaphone with the other. Shout if my cycling is scaring you, he says. Struggling to keep up, I ask if he prefers painting in the centre of London, where there are more police and onlookers. Well, it depends. More people see it, and I hate painting in places like Shoreditch. I've painted in Shoreditch before and found people cheering me on while they drink their Negronis. I like painting in places that exemplify the extremity of control. Tenfoot, who is in his mid-thirties, has seen the city change over the decades. The buildings he used to climb through to access train tracks have, one by one, started disappearing. The past decade or so has seen dozens of council estates demolished, some replaced by garish luxury developments. Almost 150,000 social housing dwellings have been demolished in England in the past two decades. Quote, Gentrification is a really reduced way to play down what has happened. It's actually the boringification of London, he says. I don't mind posh people or nice sandwiches, but it's the pseudo-nice sandwiches that get me. I remember when Chelsea was full of French restaurants and scarf wearers. Now it's just confused, wealthy Chinese tourists looking for a mass-produced panini. Nearly all the rasters, buskers, 
and Soho Gaze, London's incredibly unique character, has been pissed away. Tenford says he sees London as a semi-vegetative friend hooked up to a life support machine. Part of the strangeness of graffiti is that, while its writers are regularly thrown in jail, the same subculture they've risked their lives to preserve is being used to promote expensive trainers, boutique cafes, and quote-unquote street art tours. Consumer capitalism has an odd love-hate relationship with graffiti, a contradiction that writers like Tenfoot have noticed and find difficult to rationalise. This tension was perfectly encapsulated in 2012 when a writer named Darren Cullen, known as Sir, was arrested on suspicion of incitement to commit criminal damage and banned from using public transport, right after being approached by a Team GB to paint the athlete's village. This line between commercial acceptability and criminal liability often turns court cases into chin-stroking seminars on the nature of the art object. Art is controversial, and what appeals to one person does not necessarily appeal to another. You are not entitled, however, to impose your views on other people by damaging property, a judge in Manchester told a court in 2006 before handing a 22-year-old writer a two-year suspended prison sentence. Whether the defendant thought to invoke Gordon Matter Clark's Severed House or Ai Weiwei's smashed Han Dynasty urn remains unknown. For his part, Tenfoot likes to think of himself as a fringe, cosmic anthropologist. But it occurs to me that he might be little more than an addict, suffering from a dangerous compulsion. He's spoken before about booking early morning flights before a romantic trip with his girlfriend, just so he can get some painting done near the airport beforehand and to avoid ruining the holiday. Quote, addiction is a really loaded term, he says when I ask him about it. The more you retrace your behaviours, the more of a canal they become in your mind. I don't think that there's an addiction, it's just behavioural. I'm so used to it, I've done it for so long, I'm not saying that I have the ability to not do it. All I'm contesting is the word addiction. It's a habit, unquote. He swerves to avoid an approaching police car, still one-handed. Then he tells me about the time he cut his leg down to the bone on his way out of Liverpool Street Station. I didn't go to hospital, even though it was pissing out blood. I went to do some more graph. My shoe was scratching with blood, and I started to feel faint. And I just thought, God, I need to do this other spot on the tracks before I go to A&E, unquote. Tenfoot grew up by the British seaside, far away from any large city. I'm from Crud, Britannia, not Cool, Britannia, he says. Bunking off and smoking cheap hash by the beach huts, you kit placards in everyone's driveway, Britannia. He was into music, and music became his window to the wider world. I've agreed not to give any details that might give away Tenfoot's identity, but I can tell you that in 2006, at a house party in North London, he met graphers Tox, Save, and CK. Before that, I'd look at a tag and I'd think, how has anyone done that with all the CCTV? Whereas nowadays, I'd knock that out at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Thursday. Anyway, he says, skidding to a halt, this is the bridge I want to paint, and I see it, and the drop below. He's going to die, I think. Quote, The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose off the common, but leaves the greater villain loose who steals the common from the goose. 17th century folk poem, seen trackside at Vauxhall Station in 2022. Turn left out of St. James's Park Station and you'll immediately arrive at the enormous, brutalist block which houses His Majesty's Ministry of Justice. It stands there like some giant military bunker, casting a monumental shadow over the road. Follow the shadow and you'll come to a similar, smaller building called Albany House. 
Take the lift up a few floors and in a cluttered office surrounded by cabinets and folders, you might find Sharon Turner sitting at her desk. Turner wanted to be a police officer from a young age, following in the bootsteps of her dad, two brothers, her uncle and her godfather. She grew up watching the hit 1980s show Cagney and Lacey, in which a career-minded single woman and a mother of three busted crime and sexism in New York. When she was younger, Turner tried for a job with London's Metropolitan Police, but she didn't get it. Having moved to London, she eventually landed a job with the British Transport Police, rising to lead a team tasked with combating theft and graffiti. The BTP is a strange institution. The UK's official anti-terror slogan, See It, Say It, Sorted, has been cauterised onto the British consciousness. Repeated endlessly through tannoys in train stations since its launch in 2016. If you do see it, and subsequently say it, it's the BTP who will sort it for you. The division tackles everything, from ticket fraud to terrorism. Today she is discussing a different part of her remit, apprehending the country's many graffiti writers. Quote, You know, I've seen some horrific things. Things that give you nightmares, she says, leaning back in her chair next to a little poster asserting the values of her department. It ends with the phrase, we are one BTP. She seems slightly guarded at first, telling me, quote, I think that especially with the way that the media view the police at the minute, you know, good stories don't sell. They want the dirt. And they don't realise how much that affects the people who are trying to do good out there. 99% of officers join for the right reasons and want to make a difference, unquote. Most of what the BTP does is the kind of policing the public sees as vital, targeting robberies and sexual offences on rail networks, as well as investigating drug smuggling rings. The Graffiti Task Force, which contains one sergeant and eight dedicated officers, is also embroiled in a protracted guerrilla war that most people don't even notice, one that's been raging for at least three decades. There have been a few noble moments in this conflict. One came in 1984 with the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, which gave officers the power to search people on suspicion of carrying items to commit criminal damage. Suddenly, paint-splattered jeans, loitering on tube platforms and carrying a backpack became more risky for graffiti writers. It's common for graphers to tell you they can spot another writer a mile off just by the way they move. It seems, thanks to our line of work, Turner has developed a similar ability. Quote, If a person is loitering on the end of a platform or in a part of the station where they shouldn't be, and you think, well, they've got a rucksack with them, they've got paint all over their hands, you build up your grounds of, what's this person doing? To graffiti writers, the BTP is an almost transcendental nemesis. Holmes and Moriarty, Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. Graphers respect the BTP too, though they won't admit it. Its officers are the only people who care about graffiti as much as they do. A good example would be Detective Constable Conan Saysell. If the BTP is the Gotham City Police Department and Turner is Commissioner Gordon, Conan Saysell is Batman. He's the one who put 10 foot away, as well as his friend and mentor Tox, along with many others. According to a 2014 Guardian article, Saysell was the only detective registered as an expert witness on graffiti in the UK. His influence over who went to prison became so singular that writers like Tenfoot now refer to him as, quote, Colin says so, unquote. In 2014, Cecil expressed a begrudging respect for the vandals he policed. Quote, it's often said, graffiti writers are mindless, he said in a lecture at the South Bank Centre. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the last thing that they are. They're pretty well organised. They know what they're up to. They're adept. They're cunning, unquote.
Turner has a different view. Quote, It's just very bizarre, you know, why people want to spend their time drawing on the side of trains. It's not something that doesn't come with risk. It comes with massive risk. Is it worth losing your life for? She generally has no idea why graphers do this. I think back to 10 foot story about almost passing out from blood loss trying to get his tag up before losing consciousness. I really don't understand it, she continues. You know, we turn up at people's houses and have to tell their mum or dad that they're dead because of this. It astounds me. Turner is also eager to correct the notion that graffiti is a victimless crime. Graffiti doesn't just cost the railroad industry 20 million per year. She says it also negatively affects passengers and train cleaners. Do you travel by train, she asks. I nod. Right, so you foot the bill. Why do you think your fare goes up every year? When you're standing on the platform and your train's cancelled, do they tell you why they've cancelled that train? Has that train been taken out of service because someone's drawn all over it? Then they've got to clean the train. If they've etched or put acid on the windows, they have to replace the glass. Never mind that, if they've left acid and the cleaner doesn't know, there's damage to the cleaner. It impacts everybody. She is referring to the acid-based pens used by some graphers, often, according to Tenfoot, the same acid used to etch logos on the side of pint glasses. Through a spokesperson, the BTP declined to comment on Tenfoot's activity specifically. We then come to a more fundamental point. The graffiti doesn't look nice and makes people feel uneasy. Go to somewhere like Milan, where there's graffiti everywhere, she says. If you walk through Milan, do you actually feel safe? She has a point. Graffiti has, through films and album covers, become the wallpaper of crime, synonymous with dereliction and antisocial behaviour. It's a constant reminder that society is uncontrollable and fragile. Finally, we get to the question of sentencing, which can consist of significant jail time for graffiti-related offences. I ask Turner if this is fair. Yeah, I think it's more than fair, she replies. I think our court system is broken and that we need to be dealing out a lot of harsher sentences. How else do we deter offending when there are no consequences? Turner looks like she's about to go on when a press officer tells her we're out of time. Okay, so it's not a violent crime, she concludes, reiterating her point about the injured cleaner. But it's the bigger picture. Tenfoot is staring up at three metre tall barrier, topped with menacing steel prongs. It's night time in central London. He produces a jangling bunch of keys from his pocket and, after a short process of trying and error, the padlock clanks open and he meticulously slides it off the chain. Beyond the gate, there's a narrow courtyard with a stairwell leading to the tracks above. A brightly lit depot overlooks the area. There are voices coming from inside. Tenfoot creeps cartoon style over to the stairwell and silently unlocks the metal door. The trains are still running. There's a mystical quality to the trackside at night, framed on all sides by the London skyline. It's reminiscent of The Zone from the film Stalker, a liminal space complete with its own set of wonders and hidden terrors. There are three rails, two for the wheels and one for the foot of the train. The third rail is the one, quote, you got to watch out for. According to Tenfoot, that one could kill you. But I'm still alive, so. Trespassers risk their lives. When the blades switch to redirect the train, their feet can get caught. And if not freed quickly, they'll be, quote, turned to vermicelli, as Tenfoot puts it. I'm on the ball in this situation. It's sort of my environment. I've always got my own trains. The problem is, I suppose, that when there's a train going past you, you can't hear another one coming. That's the only thing I'm scared of, unquote. A wind starts to pick up, distant at first, but building quickly. 
Tenfoot's eyes widen. You can hear them whispering, he says. Then he jumps into the weeds on the side of the tracks, just in time to see the Thames Inc. go thundering past, barely a metre in front of him. You should never look a train in the eye, he told me. That's the rule. The eyes of a train can turn you to stone. Always turn away so the driver can't see you, and don't move until the front passes. As the carriages roll by, Tenfoot can see passengers sleeping, heads resting against the glass. They're like these quotidian mythical creatures, like great big whales or dragons. Eventually he arrives at a rusty ladder, leading to another track about four metres above. Tenfoot begins climbing, almost becoming a child again behind his balaclava. He darts about, skipping over deadly rails, putting his name on things, finding tags his friends put up over a decade ago. There's a hierarchy to trackside graffiti. The divide mostly lies between those who paint British Rail, where Tenfoot is now, and those who paint the tube. It's like different leagues, Tenfoot says. Tube writers really look down on BR writers. Tube writing is much more difficult and involves accessing dangerous maintenance shafts. But there's an aesthetic difference too. Tube trains, as Tenfoot puts it, are red, white and blue icons, whereas British Rail trains look more like hospitals on wheels. Looking at the Thameslink trains with the halogen lighting, you half expect a heart attack patient to be wheeled out 1705 service to Bedford. The tube is a different game entirely. Quote, We've been in the tunnels before and heard the wind coming towards us and run and run and run. You just have to hope there's an alcove or something. There are two types of tunnels in the tube system. The first are called cut and cover, through which steam trains used to run. They're essentially canals cut through the city with a street laid on top, lots of space. The others, the round ones, are deep lines. There's no space in there. Although Tenfoot has an untested theory that you can grab the wires on the side and wrap your body around the carriage. This is unlikely. Later, Tenfoot is about 15 metres up, perched on a railway bridge. He can see people walking down on the pavement below. He can hear the conversations. The shard glows in the distance. Suddenly, Tenfoot sees a spot he hasn't tagged before and, holding on with just one arm, dangles from the bridge, spray can hissing in the other. A sheer drop to the concrete below. Back in the day, we'd probably have parachuted people like him into occupied territory. Pulling himself back up, he spots two railway workers about 30 metres down the tracks, steadily making their way towards him. I'm at a church in North London when I catch a glimpse of Tenfoot's other life, the one I can't tell you about. I once asked Tenfoot what he did for a living. He just laughed and said, crime. I never asked again, but in his spare time, Tenfoot likes to write things. Things other than his own name. Poems, diaries, polemics. He's good at it. It's what got him through prison. His girlfriend, who was hosting the event at church, is also good at it. And they were both standing by a converted crypt, reading their stuff to an assembled crowd. Some of the people in the audience are young graph enthusiasts, fans of his who caught the train across London to see the man they know as Tenfoot outside his mythic context. You can spot the ones who are too nervous to approach him. There are also friends from his other life, the one outside graffiti. They are older, for the most part, perhaps wiser. Some of the DDS crew are here too, and Tox hangs around afterwards, a little distracted, looking at his phone for live updates from British Rail. We all lead multiple lives. It's just that one of Tenfoot's lives could kill him or lock him away. When his girlfriend jokingly compares his soft cheeks to a cherub's bottom during her reading, 
I remember thinking how there seemed to be real love between them. How awful it would be if one day the BTP got to those soft cheeks before she did. As the evening drew to a close, Tenfoot, introduced by his real name, read an account of one of his graffiti missions. I was taken aback. His two lives were colliding. His dangerous, secretive profession had swooped in like a crow flying headfirst into a stained glass window, shattering it to pieces. This is what his graffiti fans came all this way for. Not that he cares much about that kind of thing. Reading ended with Tenfoot describing how he once looked down and spotted an earwig crawling over a cigarette butt between two bottle caps. That's like me, he thought to himself, before heading out to paint a dub on a particularly inaccessible bridge, walking boldly onto the rails. Quote, Past all the no-entry signs, the trespassers are crime signs, the police may be called signs, the £2,500 fine signs, and the three-month imprisonment signs. Unquote. The account went on for a long while, but people were transfixed. This, I think, is partly why Tenfoot has been able to accrue such legendary status. It's not just that he's up everywhere, all over the world. It's not just that his tag appears in movies and TV shows. He sees graffiti as an exercise in community and a refutation of the same social contract that the late David Graeber, his idol, railed against in his books. It's bigger than him. Graffiti matters to Tenfoot on a base, almost spiritual level, and, in some way, that shines through. On St. George's Circus, just up from Elephant Castle, sits a little restaurant called Chili's Tandoori, and outside in the cool night air, Tenfoot is shoveling a large spoon of sagaloo in his mouth. Tenfoot loves it here, probably because it's cheap, open past 2am on weekdays and you can bring your own bottle. Such is Tenfoot's devotion that he once risked his life to paint a large Chili's Tandoori piece on the side of an underground train. When he sent a picture of it to the restaurant anonymously, it wasn't put up on the wall, which probably hurt his feelings. In another life, Tenfoot would be a brilliant food critic. He once told me he'd been an invaluable resource for FT Globetrotter, only he didn't want foodies ruining his favourite spots. Quote, I know the best places to eat in London, not based on the food, just the energy. Dilietto's in Kennington, Sammy's in Hendon, Spud's in Kingston, Best Omelette on the Planet, Roti Jupa in Clapham, R.I.P., unquote. I asked him if he'd ever vandalised this place. No, I wouldn't, he says. When I asked him why not, he looked slightly aggrieved. The shifting line between what is and isn't okay to tag is more important that two ten foot than he'd like to let on. There's an unspoken graph precept which prohibits doing damage or writing on cars, trees, churches and people's homes. Though this doesn't hold true everywhere, once at a leisure centre where he used to go gym, he flippantly scrawled his name on a mirror. Later, the manager, Sikh man in his 40s, pulled him aside. He told Tenfoot that he wasn't going to call the police, but wanted him to know that the centre was community-based and the graffiti made it look grotty. He relied on the place looking smart to get funding. People will think we're not running it well, the man said. The way he spoke was so outside the usual justice system paradigm that it caught Tenfoot off guard. He later bought the centre a new mirror. Have you ever been underneath the Barbican Centre, Tenfoot asks, changing the subject. It's like the negative of the biggest brutalist construction in London. There are all these caverns. Some points you have to crawl through, in others there are massive pits where, if you fell into them, you'd die in there because nobody will find you. I've been in all the disused stations as well. That's part of what this is about. This image of the graffer as explorer occupying the forgotten parts of the city helps keep the legend alive. 
There are entire forums dedicated to quote-unquote urban exploring. Something graffiti writers like 10 Foot resent. These places used to be sacred. Now there are all these high-definition photos of them online and instructions of how to get inside. Places like Old Brompton or Bull and Bush Station. And these Herb X people just ruined them. These were places DDS had been and kept safe. These are the armpits of London. People say they know London, he says. But do they really? I know the roofs of every council state. I've been to most prisons in London, most tube tunnels, most stations. I've walked around every sewage treatment plant. Hampton Waterworks, Mogden Sewage Treatment Plant. I'm not even exaggerating. I've written my name there so you can go and look. He's getting excited now. I've been to every Docklands Industrial Estate or the back streets in Marylebone. I've cycled the canal 30 miles from Broxbourne to Shadwell, then back to Watford. I've been down footpaths where there's no graffiti. That's saying something. One by one, diners begin to leave. It's midnight. We've nearly got through all the beer we brought from the off-license down the road. I'm feeling it, but Tenfoot is holding it down. I wonder out loud if he finds fame weird. You know, rappers wear t-shirts I made in my bathroom. That guy KSI wore one on stage recently, he says, referring to the popular influencer. I didn't know who he was, but apparently he's big. It's pretty weird for me being known, standing on the platform and hearing some 12-year-old telling their mum about why I'm their favourite person. Then his arrest comes to mind, the one that landed him in prison for more than a year. He was stupid back then, and when he'd get a new burner phone, he sent out a tranche of text reading, Hello, this is Tenfoot. If you are painting graph, then please save this number. In the end, they caught him chrome-handed on the side of a bridge with the Thames rolling underneath. He saw the blue light of a police speedboat coming down the river and remembers saying something like, someone's getting nicked tonight, unlucky them. Then the spotlight hit and he and his accomplice turned to each other like Beavis and Butthead. Oh shit, it's us. He ended up in Charing Cross Police Station. Since 2019, that station has been covered in commissioned street art murals that read, be creative. So where does he pack it in? It's almost 1am by the time I finally ask him. Tenfoot finishes the last of his beer. What seems to happen is people say fuck the system for as long as they have stamina until they get overwhelmed by it. So I'm trying to turn that impulse into something more positive in case I have a child or something. His voice is drowned out as someone walks past with a boombox blaring Turkish music. It's been months since I started profiling this bizarre criminal and honestly, I've enjoyed getting to know him. Though I also worry about him. I don't think he can sustain whatever this is. He can't keep trying to be the best, the most up. At some point, he'll have to stop, and when that time comes, he'll struggle to find something else. Perhaps he never will. Perhaps graffiti will finish him off like so many other graphers, turn to harrowing ghosts on London's high streets, or perhaps he'll end up an inmate again, for longer next time, or ground into paste by train. It's time to leave. We dispose of our empties, and Tenfoot mounts his bike. Considering his size, it's amazing how quickly he can disappear once you say goodbye. London can swallow you up like that. So to recap, that was After Hours with Ten Foot, London's most notorious graffiti writer, written by Miles Ellingham for Financial Times. And uh, I've gone over an hour again, or over 70 minutes, so I'll keep it short in terms of thoughts towards it. But um, this is why this is why I find 
graffiti is such an f- interesting dichotomy because I agree with kind of both, right? There's a, I, I, you know, I've said this before. I have a little bit of anarchy brain, right? You know what I mean? I, I, I like a bit of anarchy, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for it, right? And I also, I also love, you know, I love murals. I love street art. Um, all of that is interesting. But as the, as the book that I got from the Sachi Gallery, which was the um, Beyond the Streets, uh, basically like official book to official text to go with it, which is like a 580 something page weapon of a book. Um, there was a cheat sheet uh, near the beginning where uh, the, uh, where there was uh, the differences between graffiti, street art, and murals. And you know, graffiti is the legal one, and it it is inherently illegal. Street art it can be illegal, but it also can be legal. Right, um, graffiti is just straight up illegal all the time, and uh, you know I, I I agree with what um uh what the uh, uh what was it Turner um said about you know on, on the police side of things in terms of thinking about it, I get it I I get the it it doesn't seem like a thing that um it, it doesn't yeah Turner it doesn't seem like a thing that wields much towards it. So the question always asked is why, you know, why, you know, you know, devalue things and why I don't want my, you know, cheap fares to go up, I don't want my train fares to go up. But then again, you know, that's kind of a, that's, that's kind of a half truth, right? Um, I mean, you know, private companies, right? And obviously this is TFL and C2C, for example, where is my line for trains to get into London? You know, C2C raising their prices is a little bit different as a privatized company uh, compared to something like TfL. Um, so, you know, with that, with that acknowledged, um, you know, there's there's different elements to why train prices rise. Okay, so don't 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 let them, don't let the f- fact that graffiti can be a part of it and the cleaning of it can be a part of it. Um, don't let that be the sort. Don't know that. Don't know that. Th- make you think that that's the sole reason for that. Um, but anyway, it is a fascinating thing, graffiti. Um, just the concept of it, the people that are dedicate, this dedicated to it, um, and yeah, just dying for something that, I don't know, it's, it's like a sport really, isn't it? It's like a really niche sport to find the undercarriage of a city or undercarriage of a place um, and just you know, put your name there, and only a few, well, maybe, maybe it's like, you know, obvious, and obviously everyone can see it, or maybe it's just, you know, just on a train wall, and, you know, so only graphers will see that, it's such a fascinating world, it really is, um, objectively, it's very fascinating, I would love to, I'd love to have an opportunity to do something like that, in terms of like, I, I've never, you know, profiled anybody, but I feel like following a graffiti, a grapher, would be so fascinating. Oh, oh gosh, it'd be, yeah, very fascinating. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, shall I leave it there uh, from the Fifth End Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Taylor, it's been Moss Good. Your music has been too much by Vanilla, and the interlude music for the long read was Sometimes Soon by Tess. Thanks to uh, Chill Music for the bit to use both. You can find all of their links in the full show notes. And thanks to Nappy High uh, for the first interlude music. Uh, you can also find this link in the full show notes. Getting better at that, eh? Um, and with that said, <laughs> Hope you all have a good week. I should always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.